Life in the backwoods of Indiana is demanding. It is enough to wear a person out and quickly. I did not know to expect this when we moved from our quiet neighborhood in town into the rolling hills a long way from any other house when I was in high school. My parents and I settled on a farm, and while they thankfully did not give up their day jobs, uh, our, our new life out there was an adventure. They started a hay business on the side. They took on responsibility for more neighboring fields, and the work piled up. There were hundreds of fence posts to pound, Stubborn wire to stretch, endless brush to clear. And eventually, there was a new barn to build down in the ravine below our house. I didn't see how my parents were going to pull this off. It was such a tremendous undertaking, and they had no plans to hire any of the work out. I watched as they dug into the hillside and graded the site that was to hold the barn. I remember being both impressed and also really skeptical. The job was so much bigger than we were, far more than we could manage. And then one day, a few people showed up, picked up tools, and jumped in. And then they returned another day and another. My stepdad's cousin and a buddy, some young adults they'd worked with on other jobs recently, his ex-wife even, and her young son in tow. I had believed that that we needed to figure out how to do this impossible thing ourselves, the three of us. Instead, these people came and dug. They fixed thick posts in deep holes. They stretched string lines to check the angles. And finally, all together, they hoisted up the rafters. The work rested on everyone, together. It always has, with lifting the beams and approaching the grave, all of it. And here is sweet Lazarus. He's been in the tomb for four days. In spite of the stone that fills the entrance to the cave, the awful smell of his body unraveling wafts through the cracks. Four days he's been gone. This means by the understanding of the time that their brother and friend is definitively dead. Totally dead. Beyond any hope of a mistake or resuscitation from a coma. Dead and gone. The ones who love him are distraught, and they are angry, and they are railing against Jesus. 
Surely he could have done something to stop this if he had only come straight away. Right when they first sent word that their brother was sick. But he didn't. And Lazarus is gone, and it is all Jesus' fault. The mourners are out in full force. And Jesus takes all this in. He hears the wailing. He watches them shaking in their grief. He embraces his friends. He touches the cold stone at the mouth of the cave. And he he crumples there. He inhales the stench of death. And it disturbs him. It, It grabs hold of him. All this stirs something in him. The stakes are high. Bring back a dead man. This will have the powerful coming after him all the more. And yet he is moved, tugged forward, compelled towards life. And so with with tears still streaking his face, Jesus stands. Move the stone, he utters. Yes, I know he's dead. Please, do it. He won't be stopped. He raises his voice, lifts his prayers, gives thanks. And then he calls to the dead man, calls him to rise up, to rise up and come out to return. And Lazarus does. Everyone is stunned. Their mouths hanging open mid-sob, unsure what to do or say. Is this really happening? What comes next? Jesus seems to anticipate this communal paralysis. As Lazarus walks out into the sunlight, Jesus turns to the crowd. Unbind him, he calls out to them. Unbind him and let him go. Jesus pulls their friend out of the grave, but this crowd, they are the ones to set him free. The teacher is clear. They are to stand up and step towards what they see as death, what they know to be heartache, and lay their hands there where it hurts most. To touch this dead man walking to work together to unbind him from the grip of the tomb. It is uncomfortable and bewildering and fearful and unheard of. Yes, Jesus nods. Yes, it is all of that. Now come here and set him free. Jesus shows them how thin the veil is between the living and the dead. But he stops short of doing all the work for them. He asks that they complete it. He insists that pulling back the veil on death, that crossing this divide is a community affair. We don't go it alone. We don't raise our own lives Friends, I know this to be true. 
I have lived in and among death. I have been stuck there by the grave, hemmed in but what, by what I thought to be an impenetrable shroud. There's a way in which grief can, can obstruct your vision in all directions. We can appear utterly separated from the ones we have lost and somehow also barred from the land of the living, unable to participate in the wonder of the present. It can be awfully lonesome there. And yet, folks, brave this place and draw near. People hear Jesus calling them to come, to unbind a sister and let her go. And they did. They came. They have come for me continually, pulling back the veil, showing me how how its weave isn't so tight, how at times it lets the light and the wind and the love right through. They have come, they have come in countless ways through the years. One came in the form of a college classmate of my mother's. She learned of my mom's death long after it had happened, but when she did, she tracked me down all across the country, calling me to tell me stories, to send me photos of their adventures abroad, offering me the chance to peer through the curtain and see abundant life. These folks arrive as friends who still say my son Fritz's name out loud, who tell me when he's come into their dreams or when he's stirred their hearts during the day. These brave souls come as children in their earnest innocence. Just, just last week, a dear friend, uh, her son, Malcolm, he's in kindergarten, and he has known my family all his life. And last week, he grew upset and then inconsolable. He was trying to put the pieces of our story together, his family's and mine, and he was suddenly furious to learn that his mother did not come to my son's funeral. He didn't grasp that we had not yet met each other, (laughs) did not know that one another existed, or maybe that didn't matter to him. What was real to Malcolm was his knowledge that we are entirely connected, that we are kin who step towards one another, especially in pain, and then in the new life that may yet come. It's folks like these, words, acts of love like these, that continue to unbind me. They set me on my feet again and again. These beloveds step in and raise me up. At our best, at our most true, this is who we are and what we do as the body of Christ. We gather to celebrate and give thanks as a way of life. 
We come together to to feast and to grow unbridled joy and unfettered delight. We come to create the next thing of beauty together that we would never be able to do alone. And there's more. We come because as much as we may want to believe that we can build our lives alone, craft our success and our security on our own, Indeed, as, we, as much as we may be tempted to try raising our barns all by our own power, deep down we know that that is a farce. This is only more true when we slow down and cast our eyes towards death. Whether it is in mourning the ones we love and see no longer, or in recognizing the the death-dealing places where we can become absolutely stuck, deadened even as we still draw breath. We do not pull back the veil alone. We do not free ourselves. Jesus calls us in, pulls us towards one another, tells us how it will happen. Come, he says, unbind them and let them go. This is who we are. We raise the barn together. We show up and we pitch in. It's messy. We screw up. We learn. We keep trying. This is the church. Jesus comes to our graves and offers us new life. And then he turns to face us. Hear the call, friends. Unbind them and let them go.